0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian,
1: 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, Episode 7. My name is Adam Powatic, and my co-host is Aaron Cameron. Uh, today, our guest is John English. He's the Vice President of Development at TriCon. Capital. He's got a lot of experience in the industry. He's worked at Halzall, Brookfield, Oxford. He's worked in uh, Toronto and New York. And he's here today to talk about large apartment construction. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. And just uh, as, a, as a as a disclaimer, I've known John since since high school. Back then, he was just known as a math genius. But I thought uh, we weren't yeah. going to talk about <laughs> yeah. was, uh, high school. And yeah. I and I've known uh, John for six minutes. Yeah, so we got we got both ends of the spectrum covered nicely. But just as this is an introduction to the Tricon Capital Company, John, what can you tell us?
0: Sure. So uh, Tricon's based in Toronto. Uh, Tricon is a real estate investment firm uh, focusing on residential real estate. We invest on behalf of um, pension funds, high net worth individuals, sovereign wealth funds. We have sort of separate accounts, commingled funds. We also co-invest on our own balance sheet. To that end, we are publicly traded, listed on the TSX. We have a market cap of about $1.1 billion and about $4 billion uh, AUM. Uh, there's about four buckets that Tricon focuses on. A uh, manufactured housing group in the U.S., so think high-end trailer parks where we own the dirt and the amenities and rent pads to people. We have a traditional land and home building group in the U.S., so we invest with developers, Um uh, we do land development, vertical construction, sort of all for sale product, and we have a um, what am I mis- oh a single family housing division. We own about eight thousand homes across the U.S. that we uh, manage entirely in house, and then a purpose built apartment division in the U.S. where we've backed with uh, backed a company called Streetlights Residential, X Gables, uh, if you know that developer. And we're building apartments um, that we're going to hold on our balance sheet in Texas, California, and other U.S. markets. We also have that same division in uh, Canada. Tricon Luxury Residences Canada. Uh, And in Canada, because of the way the market works, the projects are a little uh, uh, leaner, we vertically integrated. And that's where I came on board. So we have a development team, a Tricon development group. Uh, There's me. Uh, I'm sort of the development guy, and then I have a, a partner, Kerry Steer, who's the head of uh, construction. And then we have, you know, an, uh, an asset management team that's now one guy. And over time, as we build more projects, that'll be built out.
2: So, how many projects do you have on the go at any one given time? Maybe maybe segregate segregate that from Canada and the U.S. Sure.
0: Or? So in the U.S., um, I'm not involved. Uh, in that, I believe we have three projects on the go. Uh, in Canada, we have three projects. Uh, the first, the Selby, is a 50 story, 502 unit apartment building at Bloor and Sherburne. We are under construction. We're about three floors above grade now. We're going to be occupying, uh, if we have a good winter, Q2 2018. We have a project at Uh, King and Spadina, 57 Spadina. That's zoned for uh, 36 floors, uh, about 329 units. And we'll start construction uh, Q1 2018 on that. There's an in-place tenant that has uh, lease remaining. And then we uh, recently closed on the Summerhill Lands. That's a 50-50 JV with Diamond Corp. Hmm. And that's the lands across from the historic LCBO behind uh, what's known as the Five Thieves at Summerhill.
1: So, I actually, yeah, years ago used to drive a delivery truck for one of the Five, th- five Thieves. I was exposed to their to their food. It was a, it was a very low-pay period of my life, but I ate like a king, so it was, uh, I'll be sorry to see it go. It's
0: some of the best-performing retail in the city, um, and so we're looking to expand on that concept and do a luxury apartment um, building, uh, density uh, to be determined with maybe more of that similar retail. So turn the Five Thieves into 25 Thieves. And we own the Five Thieves as well in a 50-50 JV with Rio Can.
1: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a spectacular site. It it's, is. Uh, it really is. Yeah, not a lot of competition, high high net worth area in terms of local. Uh, and you, local you just cl- and you closed on that?
0: We have, yes, uh, in the early part of the summer.
1: Are you comfortable ex-
2: telling us what you paid per square foot? Can't no, I'm not comfortable night. saying curious, that. Curious, curious. Um, um,
0: because then if I start talking about what we paid, then you start asking what we're trying to achieve. And we're currently picking an architect and, and going through that process. No, fair enough. Stakeholder engagement. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, of course. I didn't, I didn't think you could answer, but I had no, to ask. Not yeah. at all.
1: <laughs> you're hoping to reverse engineer your, uh, <laughs> what you're making here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, no, it is, it is a, uh, just a, a gorgeous site. Um, it's, it's a spectacular location. All those mm-hmm. locations are pretty great, but that's why we have John on today because these are all, you know, these are all big projects. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it. Do you know, how many units you are expecting at uh, at the Five Thieves site.
0: I do, but I'm not at liberty to say. That okay,
1: either. all right, we'll do it. I mean, we did
0: buy the land, so we had some. Uh, we we had a number of different sort of development schemes in mind, depending on, you know, we we need to do our market research. We need to figure out, you know, it works on a number of different pro formas, but where we today don't know which way we're going to take
2: it. Yeah, it's a long-term game too, right? So you got to – there's always some variables that you can't account for that I'm sure are going to occur at some point or another in the future.
0: And and land entitlement in this city is a very complex and and complicated um, beast, which is – we're partnered with Diamond Corp, um, which is probably the best company in the city when it comes to buying and entitling land, um, led by Steve Diamond and and his team. And so we – we're we're thinking you know best case scenario we're, we're two years two and a half years before we start construction. On
2: yeah, that. sure, sure. Um, and how many projects how many projects have you guys built? I mean, I, maybe let's I, backing up a little bit. When did when did sort of TriCon get going? And and was it always in a pur- purpose built apartment c- company? So,
0: TriCon a lot of people know TriCon for many years. We were one of the biggest um, mes equity investors in the city. We backed developers like Freed, Lantera, um, Mod. Um, Candor And about four or five years ago, Tricon got out of that space in Toronto. They saw the, uh, for sale fundamentals shifting a bit. Um, now clearly in hindsight, you know, we, we missed probably some good opportunities, but, um, they've also at the same time have been tracking the, uh, purpose-built apartment industry for a long time. Mm. And so these are the first projects that Tricon, has gotten involved with that are purpose-built rental. And we see ourselves growing to, you know, one day having a apartment building in every major node or neighborhood in Toronto.
2: And is the intention to hold the, yes. the apartments after after built?
0: Yes, long-term holds. For both us and our and our partner. So on the two projects, the 57 Spadina and and 592 Sherburn, which is now called the Selby. So it's at Selby and Sherburn, just south of Bloor. So for the Selby and the Spinina project, we're partnered with a major uh, Canadian pension plan that also, you know, is in, in, in this hold, business right. because
1: yeah, sure.
2: they want
0: exposure to this asset class.
1: If I can just uh, backtrack for one second, when you were doing Mez Equity, what kind of returns were you expecting? For uh, you know, you're obviously you're partnering with some very large names in the industry. So what was your expectation on yield when you were in that space?
0: Well, not having been involved, I, I don't want to. Couldn't say exactly, but you you were seeing sort of total um, sort of condo, you know, profit margins going from sort of 25% to 20% to 15% to, sure. you know, yeah, below 15%. So, um, and the risk profile is increasing as entitlements got longer and, you know, and construction costs were going higher. So And land was becoming harder and harder to to buy and assemble.
2: What um, what kind of margins are you looking for on your developments? If you don't mind sharing, give us a range. I mean, or is it just their general target? And I, and I yeah, guess what I'm getting at is that was probably part of the the motivation to move away from the mezzanine uh, business and into something more of the building that the, the purpose built commercial well, departments.
0: Well, being publicly traded, if we were to build a condo and, and sell it, and, and the public markets were to see that, they would they would see a condo project and and say okay well you're making x number of dollars in so many years and we're going to present value that at some discount rate and and give Mm -hmm. you you know um credit for for that amount whereas when we build uh and create an asset class that's giving us reoccurring cash flow we're going to get a very healthy multiple you know 20 times on that reoccurring income stream um so you know first thing you'd look at is a yield on cost and and you know if if we can get favorable rent increases and and you know hit some targets. Most people in this business are trying to build as close to a six percent yield on cost as possible, which then you compare to well, what is that exit what is that that stabilized valuation, and what's the spread between that valuation, which is maybe four and a half percent and what you're building to a six percent and and then
1: you know it's add pretty a pretty comfortable cushion I'd say one hundred fifty basis points it is yeah. it is
0: i mean the the as your yields get narrow, that, that 150 basis points is a lot better at a 4.5% than, say, five years ago than if you were building to a, a 7. It's something that would be – you wouldn't build to an 8% yield on cost if you were going to value something at a 65 you but know, as the yield curve tightens, that that cushion is, um, is more valuable just based on the inverse nature of.
2: Cap rates. Just, just for everyone listening to follow along, we're basically talking about the end value and what cap rates you'd be applying to, uh, to those assets at the end, and what the mm-hmm. what the what the cushion is, what the gap is between what the, the cost of the yield versus versus what it ends up being, you know, when it's fully fully occupied and operating as an apartment building. Do you, do I you, you know years ago, and I, and I you know I'm not exactly sure where it stands today, but. Part of the risk and the reason that it was predominantly condos, if not all condos, for years and years being built in Toronto, was because they just couldn't get to the rents per square foot or the rents that they needed to really justify building apartment buildings. Do you do you have sleepless nights hoping that you can get to that? I'm not sure where you where you specked it out. If you're at two and a half or three feet a square foot, but um, you know, that, that's still, I mean, to be a financing guy looking at the apartment construction, that's the biggest risk for us is do we really believe that at the end of the day, they are going to be people that are going to be willing to spend, I don't know, make numbers up 1800 bucks for a bachelor pad or sure. whatever it is. Right.
0: Sure. So you're, <laughs> and that, that, that is the, the million dollar question. Um, well, one, there's. A lot of data out there in terms of what people will pay to rent in different nodes. Not a lot of purpose-built rental apartments, but you know the shadow market, these condominiums, sure, sure. which is
2: hard to get. Put a finger on the pulse of, right?
0: Right. Um, so we track that closely, and there are companies that track that closely, and we subscribe to those companies. And so we compare rents that comparable. Like if I were to look at a site at an intersection, we would start off by doing a, a market study on every apartment every condo within so many blocks we would then tour maybe 30 40 units in every you know in total wow. uh, around that because you're not just saying well they're paying two dollars and 80 cents square foot across the street what are they paying for what do they get with that do what are have, the
2: amenities that are included exactly
0: what are the amenities that are included and people talk about rents per square foot you know does that include a dead corridor like are there 30 square feet yeah. of dead space. Oh, I love
2: there. the it's one plus den. The den is just like a really big open space we by the front put it, door, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: So we put a lot of thought and time into um, unit layouts into you know, we're, we're not selling these off plan. There's no Smoke and laser show, you mm-hmm. know, no sales center. Yeah, absolutely. We're renting these out year after year to people that are walking into that unit and being able to say, okay, yo, do I want to live here? Am I? Is my couch going to fit in here? Can I put a TV in here?
2: And is it worth the the value? Is there exactly. value to me to live in a place like this versus a 1960s built apartment that's across the street? Right? Exactly.
0: And and not only that, you're. I mean, the affordability of housing options in Toronto is. It's, it's crazy out there what, what single family homes cost. And so people that want to be downtown who don't see the value in, you know, in investing in a house that they may not want to, you know, they, Adam and I were talking before this started about how, you know, people under 35 might be switching jobs every couple of years. And so people see the flexibility in you know the value and the flexibility that comes
2: with, rent. yeah. Well, I'll just personalize this a little bit. I mean, I'm a house owner, and I'm looking at the condo markets and looking at you know rental costs and thinking, hmm, does that make sense to just sell my place, take the equity in my house, put it in some you know EFTs or whatever, and my cash flow hmm. annual, cash flow monthly is now fifteen hundred dollars hmm. more than it was before, right? Just but you get the same amenities. Effectively, you know, let's go. Let's I mean, that's a good segue. What what kind of things are you putting in these? I mean, I I read an article a couple of weeks ago. Go about uh, one of the biggest demanded amenities for apartment buildings was an indoor dog play area, um, where that, yeah, that, a dog, that a dog
1: washing station. dog washing station and things like that. Yeah. And
2: what, I mean, I'm not, not saying that that's something that you're doing, but I mean, what, how do you how do you approach that? The amenities required for apartments, and and how do you distinguish that from what you typically see in, in some of the condo the condo developments in the city?
0: Sure. So every without exception, with few exceptions. Every high-rise building in the city is required by code, by by bylaw, to have about two square meters of indoor and outdoor amenity per unit. So that's okay. about 10 square feet per unit. So some hmm. of these projects that have 300, 400 units will have 3,000, 4,000 square feet of indoor and outdoor amenity space. Traditionally, in the for-sale market, developers are selling things off-plan, there's a lot of Smoke and lasers, you yeah, know, like sure. you're you're selling things that look great on renderings, and then you know the joke is you hold the rendering yeah. up against what was actually
1: delivered. And look at the size of this park, yeah. and it's yeah, yeah like ten, 10, right. 10 square feet. when you see McDonald's uh, yeah. advertising, they have that beautiful Big Mac laid out, and of yeah, course, exactly. you get squished little burger when you walk in the place. Exactly. Same idea.
0: So um, we definitely care about amenities. We're over amenitizing our buildings, so we're providing more in- indoor amenity space than what's required by our, our by bylaw. Uh, and we're trying to focus on on generous amenities that are actually going to get used. So, you know, the gym at the Selby is 3,000 square feet, and it's going to be the type of gym that w- will replace your gym membership. So we're, we partnered with BioSteel. I don't know if you guys have heard mm. of them, but...
1: Supplement company, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: So, you know, we're going to have um, a, a gym that, you know, both any level, any someone at any level of fitness is going to feel comfortable using, including sort of you know, high performance athletes. Um, you mentioned a, a dog spa. Well, if you go to some of these buildings, one out of every two units has a dog. So it's not as much a gimmick as it is. People actually we want need to it. be able oh, to, yeah. Yeah. people have these St. Bernards in a 600 square foot unit and we, we can't prevent them from having St. Bernard. So let's make sure they walk, you know, wash the St. Bernard before it gets into the elevator before it tracks mud down our hallways. Um, we have uh, spa areas, so you know we're not going to have a hot tub in our buildings, but we're going to have you know um, I don't know if you've heard of a company called Partisans, mm-hmm. uh, but they designed our spa for the Selby. They they did Barbara Val if you've you've seen that. So sort of a a beautiful um, spa area that um, we think is going to be a real selling feature uh, and will actually be used throughout the year in our projects.
2: How much time and energy is spent on trying to predict what's going to be wanted or needed in these buildings in 20 30 years from now I mean it's certainly if your if your intention is to hold these long term uh, and operate these things over the over that 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 horizon then certainly you want to have make sure you've got you've got the space or, or maybe it's just building it so that it can be converted in 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 the future right
0: well that's exactly it for the amenities for the lobbies for the common areas you you focus on spaces that have good bones. So, you know, it's easy to, to to paint something in five years, to refresh the furniture, to change out the accessories. But the, the bones, the actual architecture needs to um, it needs to be permanent. And, and we spend a lot of time thinking about that um, because you, you don't want to make the wrong bet. And then I, we were just in Austin, Texas the other week and I toured a building uh, that was under renovation. And I said, you know, how old is this? And the, the guy touring, us said, well, it's 10 years old. This is the third renovation we've done in 10 years.
1: Hmm. The market down there is much more competitive. Yeah. I actually down there a year ago and as a topic of discussion that builds, these buildings are in arms races for yeah. trying to be the newest, shiniest object in the block. It's mm-hmm. gotta be expensive for the landlord.
0: It is, it is. But what's expensive is, is vacancy. And, and you know, we've, we have uh, fundamental, you know, very low structural vacancy in the city. But if that changes, you know, we we were talking about the shadow market earlier. So much of the rental stock currently in the city is being met by mom and pop investors. Mm. And as you see purpose-built apartments come online that start taking away business from these mom and pop investors, how are they going to react? Are they going to start cutting rents, offering, you know, um, free rent deals, so we hopefully don't see an arms race like that, but definitely we, we put a lot of thought into this sort of the, the durability and timelessness of our designs.
2: How do you how do you handle? Do you have a rule, a general rule, when you're approaching parking and, and number of parking spots? I mean, we we see we see some stuff here at First National that to be financed, and you know we, we scratch our heads sometimes where it's let's say it's 250 units and they're proposing 50 parking spots, and we kind of say, well, wait a minute, what's the logic here? And oh, it's a walking neighborhood and no one has cars, and it's you know okay, is that true? Because you know how do you do you limit yourself or what, what's your approach to that?
0: It it varies by Location, okay, it really does, and 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 who your target renter is, I would say you want to build as little parking as possible, but as much as needed, right? Because uh, they can really kill a pro forma. Oh, oh, that's the thing. Nothing's too, more right? dilutive than, yeah. than parking. Yeah, um, particularly when you're trying to to get these projects online as quickly as, as possible.
2: possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're seeing. I mean, our project at King and Spadina, we're going to propose a parking ratio of zero point four stalls per unit right um, but our project at Summerhill will probably be closer to one stall right. per unit right so it really depends on on is, is this is this, are these single people you know if you look at Kings Spadina and there's two streetcar stops and if frankly if you live there it's because you want to walk to work so do you throw in 10 car shares do you throw in you know there's probably going to be a one- to one bike parking ratio. Uh, so every unit will have a, a bike, okay, stall. bike stall, and that's the, the city's a big believer in that, as they should be. Uh, but no, parking definitely depends on on who that end user is.
2: Um, jumping a little bit to affordable units and just the negotiations and process with the city, and and you know what your company's sort of approach is to contributing to the, the demand and the need for for affordable mm-hmm. units, and 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 maybe talk to just the, the conversations you have with the city and what they're asking of you.
0: Sure, that's a that's a great. Uh, question and it's it's a frustrating process because well I, sh- I should back up Tricon believes strongly in providing affordable units as part of these developments. Uh, we don't see any um, challenge any f- for our business. We don't see um, sort of a, a detriment to our product. You know, we the, the Adrian who runs our program spent eight years in London and and talks about projects he'd find he's financed there where. You could have some of the highest luxury product in the city, and there'd be affordable mixed into that. I've spoken to people at, at TriDel, which is sort of leading in um, affordable condo development, and you know they have products where you know there's 15% affordable housing, and they they sell out million-plus units, no problem. I, I don't think the Toronto market is going to react negatively at all to to mixed uh, affordability question just is how do we as as the developer remain whole um because uh, it is very hard to make affordable housing work um so you know we'd be happy in each of our projects providing five six ten affordable units but what what levers does the city have to 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 keep us whole and mm-hmm. those could be um you know uh deferments of our development charges, rent debate, uh, tax abatements.
1: There's generally a 10 year, 10 year uh, tax incentives, right? Is that uh... the,
0: the, the challenge is, is there are no steadfast rules there. There's no, there's, you know, one team at city hall that is extremely overworked and it, it's difficult to sort of, you can't, there's no formula that we can point to. So it's, it's a prolonged negotiation. And because we don't have as of right density in the city, you can't just say, okay, well, we'll give you X and you'll give us an extra two mm-hmm. floors. Mm-hmm. Everything is a negotiation when it comes to getting land zoned.
2: Do you have any comments on uh, inclusionary zoning and the, the, these, these, these new proposals that the cities come out with, the provinces come out with?
0: I mean, I think I think that's too drastic uh, a measure to just say that you know every, every site in the city isn't suitable for a tower. Every yeah. site in the city is not suitable to have x percentage of affordable housing i think we need a more nuanced
2: approach. yeah just for for, the, for everyone listening just maybe didn't follow that and the, 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 i believe it's the province correct me if i'm mm-hmm. wrong the province come through and said if they're proposing we do sort of inclusionary zoning which they would just select blocks of streets and areas that uh anything to be developed or, or in that neighborhood would have to maintain or have to have a certain proportion of 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 units that are affordable um And there's there's a raging debate right now whether that's
1: the appropriate approach to this this issue or not. You can appreciate the, the spirit of it but obviously the implementation is what impacts these developments it's uh
2: well and and I mean certainly for 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 John and, and working for a developer and the the answer is how do you how do you keep yourself whole if you're doing that and now you mm-hmm. have to have 25% of these units in this particular location right. including um, you know to be affordable um, what kind of benefits are you getting and then I think the ultimate answer is you know what happens is it ends up being more expensive for the non um, it's certainly on a condo development it just becomes more expensive for the non-affordable units and then an apartment building I'm not sure exactly how you, how you work it maybe it's just not workable because you can't just bump the rents an extra 300 bucks per unit because it, to, to counterbalance the affordable units because then you're just not going to rent them right so yeah
0: it, it, it's a real challenge I mean if you think about the value of land uh, and, and you consider it a sort of a residual value and a pro forma if you start reducing um, rents by 30% you know, if you think of 80% benchmark, CMHC rents is sort of the, the, the guideline for, for affordability. It, it wipes out the value of land. The city can't give away land in most locations and expect a developer to be able to build affordable housing. Development is just a risky business, and there are minimum return thresholds. And there's just too big a gap between market and, and affordable housing in the city. So no, I, I don't know what the solution is, um, but a, a, a creativity is, is is needed.
2: And you, you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about it because it's it's important. I think it's important to anybody in this space uh, to 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 be to be um, sensitive to this issue, right? Oh
0: sure. And you talk to stakeholders, city councilors, and everyone says, yeah, this you know this is what we want. And then you say, okay, so now what? You know, <laughs> who do we talk to? And you know, there's a couple people at city hall that. It'll take you three weeks to get on their calendar because they're just, you know, like most civil servants in the city, they're overworked and and understaffed. So, uh, you know, unless there's like a a, a rule book, it's hard to kind of get creative um, in the Toronto development uh, business.
1: And you think the idea is for the city to maintain control, that they can really tailor developments to what they see fit uh, per area, and that's why they don't have formulas in place? Or do you see some point in the future where it would be formulaic? I I
0: think, I think, yeah, I think right now, every site in this city, like we don't have things like air rights or, or as of right zoning, really in the city, every site is considered on its merits and, and evaluated on, on the proposal brought forward to it. You know, we, we, we zone sites, the city allows developers to build depending on what they're proposing. And, you know, they, they, as they should. They care about the materiality being proposed. They care about what your neighbor is proposing to build and and, you know, their plans for the public realm around that site. And and it's a negotiation from day one, a very Prolonged negotiation. I'd
2: imagine a part. A lot of yeah. the challenges may just be what's what's hot in the news that particular yeah. week or month. I mean, right now there's some. I can't remember what newspaper it was, but there's a big article about public space being provided by developers yeah. and parkland. And so I'm sure now you got some knee jerk reactions from the city saying, "Okay, well, okay, fine. Now you got to build a, you know an extra acre of parkland and part of, as part of this development or, or whatever the case may be."
0: Development at the end of the day, the city can't use development projects as a way to finance city building developments should pay for themselves and should pay for the, the infrastructure required for that development. But, you know, you can't build a subway on development charges. You can't, you can't build a, you know, a, you can, you can contribute to parks, but you can't build, you know, public monuments on development projects. You know, we have, we have a real revenue pro- problem in the city. Um, and, and, and so it's it's easy to kind of pick on developers, but um, you know you're not going to fund a multi-billion-dollar subway expansion or a downtown twenty-acre park over a rail deck on you know a handful of, of condo projects.
1: And what happens, of course, if development was to slow down in the city? Do you stop uh, stop any sort of uh, infrastructure infrastructure building within the city? It's uh, a yeah, it's a sticky sticky slope there.
2: It is. Really good. Slippery slope, not a sticky slope. Yeah. <laughs> sticky and slippery. <laughs> um, so, so given that we're um, both financiers, Adam and I work in the commercial real estate mortgage. I'd, I'd love to hear just what your approach to financing is, and and um, you know, obviously, it's it's a very capital intensive. Um, Capital terms of business. So, uh, what what leverage points are you looking for when you're doing your financing? I mean, do you do you have uh, mezzanine mezzanine contributors? I mean, what's um, what's the structure typically look like for you guys?
0: So, I mean, the, from a financing perspective, the main difference between a condo and an apartment project is that a condos, I'd say without exception in the city, are f- partly financed on deposits by by purchasers. So, in Toronto, there's a culture of people buying units years before they're delivered and providing up to 20% of the the value in deposits. And then developers are able to use those deposits to help finance their project. So 20% of their, their value is, is um, accessible. You know, they, they have to provide bonding and there's, there's tearing requirements, but that is in a way close to free financing for developers for an apartment project. There is no pre-sale. So we're breaking ground at 0% least, um, and we're building um, up until a few months before we're done at, at 0% least. So the equity requirements are about three times that of a, of a condo mm-hmm. project. Um, you know, our, our project at Selby, uh, we have about 70% loan to cost financing that's provided by a, a syndicate led by schedule a, uh, banks, um, I said earlier, TriCon is a is a large uh, publicly traded uh, real estate company. So we have a, an extensive corporate finance group, and um, we're partnered with a uh, major Canadian pension uh, fund. So uh, we're not; it's not true development financing. In a way, it's it's sort of corporate. Loans mm-hmm. that we're getting, you know, we've got completion guarantees and so forth.
2: So it's not your prototypical mortgage. It's, you
0: well. Yeah, it's not like me and another guy saying, you know, we've done this a mm-hmm. few times and going into a bank and, and saying to you guys, okay, lend us some money and, you know, we put up collateral.
2: Is your approach to to push the leverage, or you just kind of you see? You know, you've got the this partnership, and you obviously have some access to capital that's not necessarily, you know, uh, financing. So you're comfortable at seventy percent, and it's just it's a it's a level of risk you're just comfortable with at, at that level. Or are you looking to say, hey, you know what? I'd rather have ninety five percent financing and put as much or sorry as little equity into this deal. Uh, do you, is there, there's a there's a balance there. I mean, for those mm. for those listening, right? I mean. You put 95, you put only 5% equity in and it, it it's um, you're gonna to have to pay for that for mm-hmm. that 95% uh, financing right But at the end of the day you've got less skin in the game and maybe you can turn more products, more projects around in a, in a shorter period of time.
1: Not to generalize, but uh,
2: a lot of developers do prefer as much
1: leverage as possible right it's for uh, that for yeah. that very purpose mm-hmm. that
2: hey, if I can do three projects this year rather than two by paying a bit more for my financing costs, that's that's a risk they're willing to take, right?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I can't talk about the exact um, sort of uh, financing costs we have for say our first project, but I'm sure if we could get the same interest rates at 95 percent LTC, yeah, which you for can't. Sevens, no, no, I mean, it exactly. goes from
2: it goes from and I'm just remake numbers up. These are not real numbers, but it goes from three percent to seven percent, right? right? So
0: so you need to. It's a balance between your cost of equity and your hmm. cost of debt, and finding that optimal sweet spot. Which for for our first project was at seventy percent LTC, right? And I'm sure it'll remain close to that.
2: And you must be looking projects. at the exit too, right? I mean, you're looking at the end value and and what the financing will be on the exit, because I mean, mm-hmm. certainly you don't want to end up having to put more equity in oh, no, at right. the end of the project because you can't can't get the term financing to cover the the, the cost the, the 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 construction financing.
0: Definitely, and we plan on pulling out as much equity as we can at, at the, the end. Yeah,
2: of course. Which. You know, as as you should to turn to turn the to turn the wheel
1: to the next project, right? And for for anybody who hasn't built an apartment before, which would be a number of them, the exit is after the property. You haven't is, built one, really? Well, not in a while. <laughs> That's it's, all, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all. Lunchtime, <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah. Uh, the end for apartment is, of course, when it's fully leased. It's not upon completion and you you open your door for business. It's uh, it's. Once it's leased up, so I actually wanted to ask John about that. you know, how long you know, if, if you build a twelve plex, it's going to lease up pretty fast. But if you're talking about five hundred plus units, like you are at the Selby, what's the lease up period there? I mean, you know, Toronto's got very, very low vacancy rates, but there is a time frame which is going to take to fill up that space. We, sure. you know, what are you projecting?
0: Okay, well, that's a great question. That requires a lot of planning. The first thing is we want to start leasing as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. I don't know how soon people will lease before moving in, but if someone wants to sign a, a lease a year before we're ready to start occupying, we'll let them. Realistically, maybe up to six months beforehand.
2: Um, but people like to walk the space. I guess people the like challenge. to walk
0: the space. So you look at phased occupancies, you look at having maybe ground floor units that are, are open first that you can walk people in. Um, it, it really is a challenge moving these those units. And the key is getting that lease up done within the first 12 months. Cause as people roll as their first years go, you know, as they renew after a year and they start to leave, you don't want to be leasing up against yourself. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so fighting
0: against just your natural attrition.
2: Do you have incent, uh, incent plans and sent incentive incentive, incentivization? Is that a word, uh, structure or products that you used, you know, free TVs or free months rent, or do you, do you kind of hope you don't have to do that?
0: Uh, we've, We've pro uh some levels of, of rent incentives mm-hmm. and are, are closely tracking what are, some of our competitors are doing. Right. Um so it's 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 a balance. Right. Definitely not free TVs or you know, gimmicks like that, but which you see, yeah, you know. Of people, course. Uh, but
1: usually smaller markets than downtown Toronto. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, yeah.
0: But uh, there's, you know, and it's incentivizing agents to, you know, how can you make that leasing experience as, as seamless as possible? I had lunch with a a leasing agent the other day who who sells houses, condos, and also does rentals. And she was saying it's more paperwork for her to do a rental than it is to sell someone a house. So if you can, if you can make that process easier and and sort of, you know, more maybe you're open late at night during the week. So people can come by after work to look at an apartment and, and sort of, you know, help in that way. It's not exactly a free TV, but, Other forms of of
2: incentives. My last question on this is, is how do you balance the urgency or the need to lease the space up quickly with the quality of tenants and the scrutiny that you put your tenants, your potential tenants through?
0: Oh, wow. That's a good question. Because,
2: um, I mean, you, I, mean I, I presume you're checking beacon scores and verif- verifying employment letters and all that. And so, you know, there's there's a balance, I'm sure, right? You want to be, be careful because you want to get the right tenants in. But at the same time, you want to make sure you're doing it quickly and you're not turning away perfectly reasonable tenants just because you want, you know, top quality tenants or however you want to frame it.
0: No, that's a good question. We, have a, uh, we recently hired a head of asset management, uh, Stephen Gross, who's ex-Bental, ex UWL. And that is a good question for him and something he, you know, we're not opening for the, for really a year and a half before we right. start occupying our first building, but we've already hired the head of asset management to, to have to, to, th- to have those thoughts and exactly. think that stuff through. Yeah, because sure. it's, it's, it's a real balance. And yeah, be absolutely. A real challenge.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? Any other questions you have? I don't yeah, know. Did we cover
1: most, right? we'll, most one talkers. more, one more related, um, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, John used to work down in New York City so we'd love to hear any any like, you know, glaring differences between uh, how you develop down in New York City and how you develop in Toronto this partly plays into, of course Toronto's inferiority complex to that city so that's why we have to ask
0: well so I, I went to I went to school in New York uh, I got an MBA at, at Columbia and while there uh, spent a summer working for Brookfield um, in the New York office and then, about a year worked for a young developer who was trying to get a, a um, sort of a affordable tax credit deal off the ground. You talk with the inferiority complex in Toronto, New York is a massive city and it's a massive market. And at a fundamental level, working in Toronto is much more, and maybe I say this cause I was born and raised here, but it's easy to get your head around the Toronto market and to understand neighborhoods. You can, you know, if someone brings us a deal and says, you know, I've got a great site and it's, it's at Danforth and, 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 and Maine, you know, I instantly know Danforth in Maine. You know, I, I dated a girl in high school, <laughs> you know, lived there or my, you know, my buddy's cousin had a place there. You know, we, we went out for dinner there. Like it's Toronto is in many ways a, a, a small city, a small city of neighborhoods that you can get cities like New York that attract massive amounts of international capital. In my mind, it, for a, for a young guy, it's really hard to get your your feet wet in the development game down there. Um, so I'm I'm glad my wife and I decided to move back to Toronto, and I think I've had a much more rewarding career having, you know, working in Toronto than if I was uh, a very small fish in a massive sea like uh, New York City.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing we like to do with all our all our guests, John, is ask them for their best and worst day in real estate so it'd be great if you can give us you know a minute a minute on each
0: sure um well my best day in real estate would be really any day that I've been able to walk through a completed project um I was at Oxford for four years and worked on a a number of projects including uh, the recent expansion of Square One Shopping Center in Mississauga and uh, going to the recent completed addition uh that we did with my family taking my kids there was a fantastic experience and that's that's the best thing about development which is you know it goes from paper to it bricks goes and mortar from paper to bricks and mortar and and really from sort of someone you know sitting around a table talking about a project to to running after your four-year-old in a hallway like you know <laughs> as he bounces off the 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 column guard that you talked about installing yeah. for just that reason. Um that that's that's a wonderful wonderful experience. Um in terms of my worst day, definitely um any in mean, any day for example where you're trying to, you know, in, in development, um for example you have uh tiered development charges where on July 1st, development charges will be increasing 30%. And there'll be a huge penalty to your project if if you try and pull, say, an above-grade permit the day after those development charges are rolled out. So you'll scramble as a team to say, okay, we've got to pull our permits on May 30th because if we miss this by a day, you're going to get this massive penalty. And what happens time after time is you scramble for a day and then things come up. And, you know, luckily I've never had a time where we've, we've failed in that situation. But when you get that call from say the zoning examiner being like, Oh, you didn't, you missed this, you know, you've put so much work into something and all your consultants have been working on it. And then of course you've missed one small object. And I mean, I've, that's, those instances have taken years off my life when you're just, nothing's more stressful than the thought, like if I screw this up, I'm going to be at three million dollars and probably a
1: job. So, yeah, you have many multiples of your salary. Yes. So, it's, uh, <laughs> that's right. yeah, that's right. People tend to notice that those kinds of losses. Thanks, John. I appreciate everything everything you've. Uh, yeah, that, that was wonderful. Was yeah. Really, really yeah. informative. Yeah, thanks very much. We're going to move on to the news next. So, Aaron and I each have something to talk about, but uh, we do invite uh, John to jump in with any thoughts he's got. Uh, Aaron, you want to go first? Yeah, mine was just really a comment on.
2: Um, the new legislation that's being rolled up by the federal government and just the impact it has on commercial real estate and commercial financing in particular. And, and, you know, um, there's been a lot of news circulating in the global mail, national Post, and basically every major, um, News um, entity is, has has been writing articles about this, and you know, quite honestly, the the new legislation has zero impact on on the commercial real estate environment, commercial financing whatsoever. There, there's some comments in some of these news articles that say it impacts rental housing, which is true, but it's rental housing that gets that falls under the residential single family market that are for one to four units of rentals, right? So the the new legislation is effectively that um, there's no longer going to be um, you know, you're not able to pool those loans and get the insurance necessary to pool those loans. So um, it certainly impacts the single family market. But on a, on a commercial real estate perspective and multi-family residential, which is five units and up, there, there is zero impact to this new legislation. And, you know, for, fi- for First National Financial in, in general, it, it's, um, it, it impacts our single family business my, to a minor uh, amount, but, but certainly on the residential, on the commercial side, excuse me, on the commercial side, uh, it's just business as usual.
1: I've had a few calls from clients. Yeah,
2: and that's the reason yeah. I, I thought it'd be important to mention because it's it's it, we do get a lot of oh wait you can't do rentals anymore like what are you guys going to do because you know at First National we're sixty percent is CME C insured multi residential um, financing uh, but that's not impacted thankfully do you, lucky do you, lucky for us we're still employed and still still working hard yeah
0: do you guys see this recent uh, these recent changes to legislation uh, impacting single family home prices in Toronto?
1: It has to to some degree. I don't think it's going to be a market stopper. But if you just reduce people's borrowing capacity, it reduces what they can, you know, kind of house they get into. There has to be some sort of impact but demand is very intense in this market. Maybe you can bear losing a certain percentage of purchasers and still have the same intensity. If you have a if you have a bidding war for a house and you get nine offers rather than fifteen, do you think your final sale price is going to be drastically different? I don't. I don't know. Yeah,
2: minor. I think certainly there's going to be some impact. Is it two percent or five percent or one percent? I'm not sure. But it's it's not thirty percent or anything like that. From as far as just for the prices go. You know the one that really is interesting me, just interests me talking about this, uh, is the is the inability now to refinance existing existing uh, debt. So I think there are a lot of, and this this really impacts. I think the baby boomers more most importantly is if you know, you've got a house in Rosedale you bought thirty five years ago for two hundred thousand dollars. It's been free and clear, and it's been your go to when the day you retire, you're just going to refinance that thing, take a million bucks out because it's worth four million now, and you just you can't access that capital anymore. You just can't go and finance it through through. Standard terms, you got to pay more. You got to pay more interest.
1: You'd have to move essentially, to or actualize. yeah, I mean, yeah. you can
2: certainly find the financing, but it's no longer going to be insured, and it's no longer going to be um, you know at the two point five percent posted rate that the banks are, are advertising. Um, so, how does that how does that impact it? I'm not sure. Are You're going to see more of those houses on the market. Uh, you know, I don't know, but I think it's going to have a positive impact. I think you know, house prices should not appreciate by fifteen percent year over year. That's just that's just that's just too much. So. We'll see yeah. how it impacts it. If the
1: goal is mild cooling, I'm all for it. I mean, obviously, legislation can uh, end up being heavy-handed and, you know, with major cooling, which, which nobody wants. Kind of seeing activity in you know, Vancouver drop off because of the 15% uh, foreign owner tax. Maybe that reaction wasn't intended to that degree.
2: Uh, I heard somewhere I I, don't, I can't validate these numbers, but it was something like they were expecting say 500 million in, in additional revenue. The city of Vancouver and ended up being two billion. They were four times over the revenue that they thought they would generate from these taxes. Yeah. And they kind of went, "Oops, well, we'll just put that aside, and that'll be sort of future generations' money to spend, right?" Like, you know, it just shows that how little. I know accurate numbers are available when, you know, making decisions on, yeah, that it probably based on that figure, it probably shouldn't have been 15%. It should have been 5% if that was the true, the true intention. But they threw a dart at the wall and it was 15%. And
1: that's the number they they picked. Yeah, whoops. Go ahead. You got something else? I do. I do. I'm going to talk about the top three tweets from the real estate strategy and leasing conference that recently happened here in Toronto. I think it's a kind of good brief way to to uh, encapsulate a whole day conference into three sets of 140 characters or less. The the first one is from uh, Jeremiah Seamus His Twitter handles at Jay And actually, I recommend people follow it. He's very active uh, on Twitter, very knowledgeable as he was at this conference, and his first tweet was, uh, Andrew Grantham of CIBC said rates to rise at snails pace by Feds in the U.S. Uh, slow and cautious, starting in December. This has been promised for a long time that the Feds were in the U.S. were going to raise rates, and the idea is, is that Canada would follow. And that typically, we've you know shadowed their their activity, but more recently, the news people are saying that if they move, maybe we don't have to move. Maybe we look at our own economy. Maybe the U.S. is is stronger, especially now that we've lost oil. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in December if they do move, which is not a guarantee because, uh, of course, it's been promised a few times in the past, and every time they say, well, the economy's not quite ready yet. And uh, the second interesting thing will be to see if Toronto – not Toronto, my apologies to the rest of the country. If <laughs> Canada. If Canada does follow in that, when historically they have, and maybe they won't this time. Maybe we'll, we'll carve our own uh, you know, economic path. Hmm. Uh, The second one is from Karen Sweet. Her Twitter handle is at karensweet9. And this was a a session on big data. And she says, what's happened in fintech is now happening in real estate. And fintech, of course, stands for financial technology. It'd be the automation. The software has taken over a lot of financial decisions, I hope, on a personal level, and for the people in this room, that is not the case. I'd hate to see uh, developers replaced by robots, and now John's Never out of happened. a job. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's an art, not a science. Yeah. You can't replicate this. Yeah, yeah but um, you know, it is something to think about. We've seen a lot of, a lot of industries get chewed up by by uh, technology, and you know, what they're claiming is that real estate is going to see some degree of that. I sincerely, sincerely yeah. Well, I our, our
2: bosses at First National always claim that a monkey could do
1: what we do, so maybe that is true. Oh, a yeah, monkey, a, not a robot. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's, anyway, it's it's an interesting concept. You know, five years from now, we'll have a clearer picture. And if that's the case, and 20 years from now, we'll definitely know. But uh, something to think about. And the third one, I went back to Jeremiah for another quote, because he must have pumped out 15 quality quotes. I could have done 10 just from him. Uh, we should have on the show. We should, we should. Toronto GTA industrial market at 2.9% vacancy. It's the lowest historical rate. Uh, land supply development charges and stagnant rates all lead to less supply. This kind of flies in the face of our second episode i 'll put it in the show notes but the second episode we we're talking about all the spec build going on in the Gta but relative to the size of this market it is it is a pretty small uh, pretty small percentage to try and accommodate you know new tenants uh, and, and new growth but it's it 's amazing to think that you know, we were talking about office vacancy going below five percent, Toronto, and that's a you know, North American record. And, and industrials at two point nine percent. It's that's a, that's a, you know verging on a non-functional market, similar to uh, the apartment space. Mm, interesting, yeah. Especially when you think about you know trying to move an apartment is not as difficult as moving a hundred thousand square foot business. Mm-hmm. And now you've got to contend with you know leasing considerations that you. It's uh, it makes it a lot tougher. But uh, I guess great for people that know industrial real estate because it mentions here the stagnant rates are part of the reason that hasn't led to a lot of new build. But industrial rates for the new build, you know, they are they are hitting their performance and they have gone up. I mean, Toronto industrial has been, has been very flatlined for a long time in terms of rates, even though construction costs have gone up. But there has been some movement finally with all this pressure. It is
2: fascinating to me because, I mean… For five or six years now. So uh, you know, in my mind, anyway, average average per square foot uh, lease rates in, for industrial in Toronto is kind of six to six and a half bucks. And, and, I, and I know there are sevens out there and there are fives, but that's that's kind of the where, where it's been. And go to Calgary, go to Calgary pre-oil price crash, and it was 11, 12, 13, 14 bucks. Vancouver has those types of prices per square foot whatever reason and i i have no idea why but Ottawa tr- Ottawa does as well Ottawa does too yeah. yeah, Toronto is just it's just much cheaper to lease space and maybe that's just a, a supply thing but anyway that's that's a curious its a curiosity that you know in this market in Toronto um it's much cheaper to lease industrial space than than basically anywhere else in the country
0: i i can't imagine building industrial space new at 6 bucks a foot and paying anything towards Toronto land prices like it, it doesn't make sense in my mind that
2: yeah, well, you should listen to our episode, two because that's basically what we said. But no, it's happening, and they're building it on spec. They're not even building it pre-lease or with any potential in, tenant in mind. It's just they know that it's going to get leased up, and so
1: they're they're building it. Yeah. Well, I guess, well, I guess part, of, part of the advantage, of course, is that new build has you know amenities, not like an apartment that are different than, than the old build. And you know, tenants now are looking for different... Uh, Clear heights, you know. Yeah, maybe we should
2: be careful. Form, yeah. we're, we're grouping a lot of different types right. of real estate mm-hmm. into industrial, right? And and you're t- you're about, you you talk about you know ceiling heights and whether it's cold storage or you know the docking space and you know all that kind of stuff really contributes to it. I, I think it is a it's a unique you know one of the major four major food groups in real estate, but it's one of the most unique just because there's so many different variations to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, while you're talking about six dollar average rents, there's there's a plethora of sub four dollar rent available in the city if you don't mind. Low clear height, bad shipping. Um, you know, and living with rats. And living with yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay, that's all the time we've got for
2: today. John, thanks very much for My coming. That was that you. was informative. Hopefully, everyone out there listening enjoyed it. Uh, just a reminder, you can always um, reach out to us through the website commercialrealestatepodcast.ca. Follow us at Twitter at crepodcast, uh, and you can find um, you know a whole bunch of information about John and TriCon and, and his contact information on our website.